0: Well, if you have a Bible with you, you can take it and turn to the book of Joel. Joel chapter 1, as we uh, continue our series through the Minor Prophets that we are calling the Book of the Twelve. Uh, remember, we're calling it the Book of the Twelve. That was the, that was the way the Hebrews would have referred to this collection of books. We call them the Minor Prophets. They would have called it the Book of the Twelve or simply the Twelve. And we're going through and, and we're doing one sermon on each of these twelve books started two weeks ago with an introduction, and we talked last week about Hosea. And so, next up, as we go through the biblical order, we're not going through the chronological order, but we are going through the biblical order. We find ourselves in the book of Joel. Three chapters of the book of Joel. And I just want to read a few verses from chapter 1. We are gonna, we're going to skip around uh, in uh, a couple different places, but, but uh, you can read along with as we jump around. Joel chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Verse 2, Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten, what the swarming locusts left, the hopping locust has eaten, and what the hopping locusts left, and des- the destroying locust has eaten. Verse 5 Awake you drunkards and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet of wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. Then jump down to verse eleven. Be ashamed, O farmers, tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because of the harvest of the field has perished. Then look at verse thirteen. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather all the elders, all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Verse 15 is where we will end. Verse 15 and 16. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty it comes, is not the food cut off before your eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? And so sets up for us the book of Joel. And the question is, is, is judgment coming? And if it is, who is the judge? Is judgment coming? And if judgment is actually coming, then who is the judge? And Joel is going to answer those questions for us. Now, we've read this, but I want to give you the setting of the book. The setting of the book of Joel takes place against the backdrop of a, a, a massive locust plague that swept through the land, most likely of Judah, the southern tribe. Now locust plagues actually aren't all that uncommon as a matter of fact if you were to go home and you were to google search locust plague there's modern day pictures of just the utter destruction of locusts that sweep through sweep through the the middle east especially and so he's he's Joel is using this real events, so this is a real plague, real locusts uh, doing real damage, and he's using this catastrophe to set up his book and to draw the people in and to call them to repentance because he sees that this locust plague is from God himself as judgment on his people. And so even as we look at that, in our day, we see natural devastations all the time, especially with all the news Most recently, I'm sure you're aware of the the collapse of an apartment building in in Florida just around Miami. Even to this day, there are several dead and dozens and dozens of people still missing. Totally unexpected, unforeseen, and just like that, uh, natural disasters. We have hurricanes and earthquakes and volcanoes and tornadoes, locust plagues still going on. We have diseases that spread throughout the world. Even with this, this COVID virus that has spread, it's one of those, sometimes it's like one of those once in a lifetime, even as he said, he said, I mean, has, has anything ever happened? Uh, I mean, have you ever experienced anything like you've experienced in the past two years even? It reminds us of Luke chapter 13. Remember when when they came to him and, and they brought Jesus a question about Pilate and he Killed he killed the, he slaughtered the pig, and the people are in an outrage, and he killed some guys, and, and Jesus says, says this, he says, remember, he says, those 18, this is Luke 13, four, 4 and 5, he says, those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Here's his question, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Because the tower fell on them and killed them, those 18 people, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? And he says, No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. So as we get ready to dive into the natural disaster happening in Joel, I think this is a good time for us to pause and say, what is going on with natural disasters? Because there's two extremes. There's one extreme that says, eh, who cares, I'm safe. And there are people who think that. What's the big deal? I'm safe, I'm out of it, there's no problem for me. Ah, that's really too bad. That's one extreme we should avoid. The other extreme is trying to find out a specific sin and try to speak for God. As if to say, well, God judged that city because they recently passed this law that did this thing or something like that. And it may very well be that God might have had a specific intention, but we don't know that. So we must listen to Christ. That all natural disasters, whether it's a building falling or any other... Hurricane or tornado, flood, all natural disasters are a thunderclap of God's mercy. It's a thunderclap. It's like when you hear the thunder, it gets your attention. And that's what Jesus says. He says, When you see things like this happen, look at yourselves and know that you too will also perish unless you come to Christ. Now, judgment, just that word, is. You know, a hot topic in today's culture, nobody likes talking about judgment. As a matter of fact, there's a judgment battle going on today. That's what we see in politics, that's what we we see in universities, that's what we see in our society. It's a constant battle for who has the right to sit as judge. Who has the right to sit and say what goes, what doesn't go. It's It's a battle for who gets the right to decide who should be punished, whose way is right, and whose isn't. At least that's part of it. As a matter of fact, there's also a battle raging today that there be less and less judgment on immorality and more judgment on morality. Which I think is something that's unique in the time that we're living in. More and more we're finding that people are saying, if you are doing right, if you hold to morality, if you hold to biblical standards, Christian standards, or even just general good good conscience standards... You should be punished. It's a hate crime or hate speech. All the while, our country exalts immorality. It's become a country where we reward evil and we punish good. As the message of God's standards are more and more seen as evil and hateful, with immorality running rampant in our country, we should know that that won't last forever. God will not let it last forever. And he won't bring about this change by a different president or new Congress members, or new laws in a society, God will bring this sort of thinking to an end by himself. And it'll be in the last day. We read there in verse 15, we said, Alas, for the day of the Lord is near. That's the theme of this book, the day of the Lord. You might be asking, what is the day of the Lord? Well, I have a definition for you on the screen. What is the day of the Lord? It is a time of divine intervention into the affairs of man where God pours out his judgment on the wicked and rescues his people. I'll read that again. It is a time of divine intervention into the affairs of man where God pours out his judgment on the wicked and rescues his people. That's what the book of Joel is all about. And again, it's set against the backdrop of this locust plague. So this morning, as we look at the book of Joel, I want to see three facts About God's judgment. The title of this message is fact check God's judgment. Is it true? Is it real? Is it happening? What's it look like? And Joel gives us three facts about God's judgment. Number one. Number one. Look around. God's judgment is foreshadowed. Look around. God's judgment is foreshadowed. And we already talked about this a little bit in the introduction. So I want you to notice the people he calls to give attention here. He first, and we read this in our opening, he first starts with the elders. These are the the older people in the society. These are the people who have some years on them. Because he's asking them, has anything like this ever happened before? And it's the older people that will be able to say, you know, in all my years of living, I've never seen anything this bad. And I've heard many people say that even with this, with, this, uh, with this coronavirus going around and the loss of so many jobs and the shutdown of society. It's just a lot of people are saying, man, I've, I've never seen anything like it. And so Joel is calling attention to the older ones. And he's, and he's telling them, he's saying, hey, listen up. I want you to listen. They should be able to confirm the uniqueness of what was happening plague of locusts had in, in verse 4 you have all these different locusts the cutting locusts the swarming locusts the hopping locusts the destroying locusts some commentators take this as the different stages of a locust life whatever but the main idea is it's a bunch of locusts eating all their food ravaging the nation bringing the tree down to its to even taking off the bark off of a tree And this was the type of event, notice what he says. He says, you should talk about it. Talk about it. He says, tell it to your children, and let their children tell their children, and let their children and their children tell the next generation about all these things. But what is Joel, let's ask this question. What is Joel really telling them to talk about? You think Joel simply has the idea that he wants them to pass down the event? I don't think so. Joel doesn't want them to just talk about the locusts. He wants them to talk about the reason for the locusts. He wanted to talk, wanted them to talk about the fact that there is spiritual depravity in the land. As God's chosen people, they had broken God's covenant. They were spiritually depraved. And God, he's saying, listen, this is God's judgment. This is God trying to wake us up, like it says in verse 5. Wake up. Listen up. So he says, don't... He, I, I'm certain he's not just saying, just go tell the next generation how bad the locusts were. He's saying, go tell the next generation how bad the locusts were and tell them that just as the locusts came through and ravaged the land and left it bare, so were our hearts and so was our spiritual condition. We were in a spiritual adulterous, as we read in Hosea, and idolatrous nation. You know, I have yet to hear anyone talk to me about the poor spiritual condition of a church's history. Because we like to talk about the good old days, which weren't so good. It's been said that the good old days are a mixture of bad memory and good imagination. And he's saying here, when you go and talk to your children, don't talk to them about the good old days. Bring up the locusts. This is something even reiterated in Psalm 78. Notice what the psalmist says. He says, he says we'll, we'll not hide them from, we're not going to hide them from our children, the, and we're going to tell the next generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. Then notice, notice what he says here. This is in verse 8. He says, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God, So the psalmist here is saying, when we go and tell our children, we're going to tell them how great God is. And we're going to remind our children, don't be like your fathers. A generation that was stubborn. And so when Joel is saying, go tell the next generation, you tell the next generation, don't be like your fathers. They were stubborn and rebellious. They They didn't have a steadfast heart to God. Their spirit wasn't faithful to God. And I am not here to pronounce judgment on you, older generation, as if you are heartless and faithless and stubborn and rebellious. That is not what I'm saying. But every generation needs to remind the next generation of the judgment of the Lord. Every generation needs to remind the next generation where they failed, where they faltered, where they were unfaithful to the Lord. Every generation doesn't need to hear only the victories of what God has done in a generation past, but they need to hear the failures. We need to hear the failures. We need to learn from them. As a matter of fact, sharing the failures may be evidence as to whether or not we've learned from them ourselves and we've grown. But every generation should remind the next of the judgment of the Lord and try to help them to avoid the same spiritual darkness. So he calls the elders. He says, listen up. And then he calls the drunkards. Interesting, this is the only sin mentioned in the book of Joel. The only sin. He doesn't mention idolatry. You know, in the book of Hosea, it was like non-stop. He's constantly telling them their sins. But here in Joel, this is the only one. And it kind of encompasses everything, this drunkard. He says, wake up. The drunkards are called to, to wake up because this plague would have been a very sobering fact for the drunkard. The locusts would have come in and they would have taken all the wine. So he says, your wine is gone. What are you going to run to now? Normally people run to alcohol in times of trouble and distress. And now these people, who we call drunkenness just this picture of idolatry in general, these people who are so used to running to alcohol, to, to, to calm their nerves, or to get their mind off of all the stress and the depression that comes with such a destructive plague. They have nowhere to run. Nowhere to go. Nothing to pass them out. They're not going to be able to pass out in their sorrows and sleep through this thing. They're going to have to wake up and see it face to face. There'd be nowhere to run. Drunkards normally are the ones who want nothing to do with the Lord. And here God is removing what they depended on most. But it's not just the elders and not just the drunkards, but he calls the farmers in verse 11. O tillers of the soil. He says, farmers, wail and mourn. So the wine is gone. The outward forms of worship can no longer continue. The food has been destroyed. That's cause for mourning because it's a helpless situation. A helpless situation. They had no grocery stores. They had no... Shipping containers of food to be shipped in, all their food. You walked out the door, you looked at the fields, there was your food. For you, your family, for the nation. And it was all gone. The locusts had stripped it all away. And even in verse uh, chapter 1, verse 19, notice what it says there. It says, to you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. If you go look up pictures of, of what the locust leaves behind, it literally looks like a fire had rushed through the land. Everything's black. Everything's down to the dirt. It's like a fire engulfed the entire country, all the food gone. And even the beasts of the field were suffering. Verse 20 at the end of chapter 1, it says, even the beasts of the field pant for you. Even they are struggling. So all the farmers could do is grieve. All they could do is grieve. Have you ever been there? Where all you could do is grieve? Hope is coming. Stay with me as we go through this book. So he calls to the elders. He calls to the drunkards. He calls to the farmers. And then he calls to the priests in verse 13. And he calls the priests and and everybody. And the people, he says, they needed to humble themselves and seek God's face. This locust invasion is described as the day of the Lord, like we read in verse 15. And that's because the sovereign hand of God sent the locusts to the people to judge them. So you might be saying, well, I thought the day of the Lord was something yet to come, and it is. But sometimes the day of the Lord is, is used to even describe an event like this one that already happened. But these locusts foreshadowed the greater and more terrible day of the Lord, which is why I say one fact about God's judgment is we can look around, God's judgment is foreshadowed. As the people looked around at the the destruction of the locusts, they were to see that the ultimate day of the Lord and the ultimate coming destruction was being foreshadowed in that very moment. And this is a call to everyone. For us, Calvary Baptist Church, to recognize the time Romans 1 says the judgment of God is poured out on the nation by God giving them up to all sorts of sexual perversions with homosexuality and every other perversion that comes with it. And at the end of Romans chapter 1, it says God gave them up and it says they became filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, and inventors of evil disobedient to parents foolish faithless heartless ruthless though they know god's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them it's time to recognize the time i want to encourage you in two ways before we move on to our next point is one as you interpret this world don't leave god out As you interpret this world, don't leave God out. Creation is groaning, and it's growing in the pains of childbirth, Romans chapter 8. It's longing for redemption. Until then, creation, under God's sovereignty, it'll blow with the winds of a hurricane, it'll destroy with the flames of a fire, it'll shake with the earthquakes, it'll destroy, it'll kill, it'll devastate. But don't leave God out of the picture. God's judgments in Scripture are often compared to a flood or earthquake or lightning, even at times. We are always being reminded that God's final judgment is coming. God's final judgment is coming. So when you see those things, don't be heartless, don't be ruthless, but understand that the ultimate day of God's judgment is coming. The American church has tried to Christianize this world and has wound up worldly. Or, on the flip side of that, when, the Christians, when we try to Christianize this world or Christianize politics or whatever, what happens is either the church becomes really worldly or the other side is we become so otherworldly that we're no good. We can't leave God out of what's going on in our nation. Even the sins... Even the persecution that's coming, we can't leave God out of it. We can't bunker down so deep into politics that we don't ever bump into our unsaved friends and neighbors and share with them the good news of the kingdom of God. We have to be totally dependent on God for everything. We can't be dependent on politics or power or prosperity. And, and, and so many times all it takes is a natural disaster, doesn't it? To remind us of how fleeting this world is. But we have a strong and sure and steady anchor in our loving Father. So, number one, when it comes to God's judgment, look around. God's judgment, His ultimate judgment, is being foreshadowed. Number two, the second fact about God's judgment, look in. God's judgment can be removed from you. This is in chapter two. We're not going to take all the time to read through all of this, but this is chapter two, verses one through 27. Now, at this point, some commentators think, when you get into this, are, is, is, is Joel now moving into referring to an actual army and is no longer talking about the locusts, or is he still talking about the locusts? It doesn't matter which one you land on that, uh, you know, whether it's the Assyrian Empire or whether it's an it's a, it's a army, a literal army of humans, but they're still being described as locusts. Either way, it doesn't matter. As much as we understand this text, because either way, judgment was there, and more serious judgment was coming. And so he says in verse, chapter 2, verse 1, blow the trumpet, sound an alarm. Sound an alarm. It's high time for Christian Christians in the church to sound an alarm in our homes and in our churches. Fifty years ago, and you might be familiar with this, this uh, guy, It was an old Southern Baptist preacher, his name was Vance Havner. And uh, he was preaching at the famous uh, uh, Founders Week at Moody Church in Chicago. And this was in the 1960s, and in, that, in the sermon he wrote, or in the sermon he preached, here's what he says, and this was about the country. This was, again, 1960s. He says, if things keep on as they are, we'll have to swap the eagle for a vulture as our national symbol, in that same decade, Billy Graham, you might be familiar with, some of you may be familiar with this book. Billy Graham, uh, in 1967, wrote a book called World Aflame. And in that book, what he did is he gathered all different sort of statistics about what was going on in the world, uh, and he was writing a book on it. And so statistics on political st- st- statistics, on how that's going downhill, Social statistics on how that's going downhill, scientifically going downhill, philosophically going downhill. All sorts of sexual perversions that he mentioned in this book, uh, with the increase of pornography during that time and the acceptance of all these other perversions. And so he he has all these statistics of all these things written out on his on a piece of paper on his desk. And his wife Ruth was walking by his desk one day and looked over his shoulder, and she said she said Well. If God doesn't judge America, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. And that was 1967. How much more are you thinking the same thing today? Jesus and Joel, Joel is calling us to sound an alarm. Jesus, when he talked about the tower that fell, he, he sounded an alarm as well. Look into your hearts. Unless you repent, you too will perish Sound the alarm. The darkness and the devastation and the destruction of the locusts was coming to Judah in a very much more severe way. We must take holiness seriously. And so he says raise the alarm. But then here's where you here's where he can be delivered. This is in chapter, uh, verses 12 through 17. I want to read these. Look at chapter 2 beginning in verse 12. Where he says, yet yeah, even now. Notice he says, Now. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Those are the evidences of a broken heart. And he says, and rend your hearts. That word rend means to just tear it open. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over a disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. A grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord our God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children. Don't leave anybody out. Bring the children. Bring the infants. Bring the newlyweds. Bring them all. In verse 17, let them all weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, And make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Rend your heart. Raise an alarm. Rend your heart. Verse 12 marks a transition in the book. And he says, yet even now. The time for repentance is now. Faith in Christ, now. Now. The people were to confess their sin. Now here's the temptation. Here's the temptation we come face to face with God's judgment. And that is the temptation even here where it says in verse 13, rend your hearts and not your garments. The temptation is to do the physical outward things to make it seem like we're spiritual people. That's, That's the temptation. To engage in religious ceremonies. To go to church. To do spiritual things. To talk in a spiritual way. To look a spiritual way. To say I'm sorry, but not to have any real heart change, not to have any real change in desires. But here's what Psalm 51 verse 17 says. It's the same idea. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. The sacrifices of God are brokenness. Brokenness. What we need in the church, yes, we need it. At the White House. Yes, we need it at our country's capital. Yes, we need it in the Supreme Court. Yes, we need it all over the country. But what the church needs, what Calvary Baptist Church needs is a broken heart. What the guy standing behind this pulpit needs is a broken heart. Someone who's willing to tear open their hearts with violence. And to take it to God and say, God, my heart is open before you. Show me your ways. You, God, here's my broken heart. You piece it back together. Because a torn and a broken heart, that's a heart God can do something with. That's a heart God can use. And the motivation, notice the motivation. The temptation is to do outward things. The motivation in verse 13, he is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Our motivation is the very character of God. You might say, this God with all this judgment, the locusts that come, And that's not even, I mean, a locust, that's bad enough, but that's not even as bad as it's going to get. And we might say, man, there's no way I'm going to that sort of God. But he is gracious and merciful. He's abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. In our sin, we are heading for disaster, for ruin, and for God's wrath. We are heading heading for God's wrath in our sin. And what does God say? What does God say to that? He says, you're heading for my wrath. Come here. He says, come to me. I won't turn you away. I already know you're a sinner. I already know your failures. I know your regrets. I already know your shame. Come to me. If you come to me by faith in Jesus Christ, You died on the cross and rose again for your sin. I will deliver you. That's what he's saying to you. Why wait? Even now. Why wait? Why wait to come to Christ? I'm not asking you why wait to become a church member. I'm not asking if you are a church member or not a church member. I'm asking, do you know Christ? Have you been delivered from the wrath of God? Through God's provision, who is Jesus Christ. Remember he, he, we read there in, in verse sixteen he says to get everybody together. This isn't just for one guy, a few people. You go call, go get the people in the nursery, bring them here. Get the pastors, bring them here. Bring the newlyweds, bring them here. Get ev- get the children, bring them here. Everybody get together now. Everybody get involved. It was time to return to the Lord. Warren Wiersbe, when he comments on this passage, he says the nation had to choose between revival getting right with God, or reproach, robbing God of glory, end quote. And that's our choice. Even at Calvary Baptist Church in 2021, that's our choice. Between revi- revival and getting right with God through broken and humble submission or reproach, where we, we continue to rob God of glory. And I can just imagine Joel bringing and the priest bringing everybody together, and giving this message and saying, well, how about it? How about, how about it? What will it be, you elderly? What's it going to be, children? What's it going to be, newlyweds? What's it going to be, pastors? Get right with God. or Continue to rob him of glory. And God says, return. Come to me. And then in verses 18 through 27, he says, raise the alarm in the first few verses there. And then he says, rend your hearts. And then he says, now rest in my promises. Verse 18, 19, the Lord said to his people, behold, I am sending you grain. That would have been good. I'm sending you grain. It's like how excited America would have been a year ago when I'm sending you toilet paper. It's like, yes, it's here. Okay, that was in my notes. I could have left that one out, but we're going... Uh, You know, I'm sending you what you're, you're missing, your food, your wine, your oil. You're going to be satisfied. You're going to be satisfied. God says, rest in my promises. Joel looks beyond the judgment to the time when God will totally restore all things. Because just as sure as God's judgment is coming, so also is his restoration. And so all the people, if you continue to read through this, all the people, all the plants, all the trees, everything, they're going to rejoice. Because it's as if the world is God's garden again. Just like in Genesis chapter 1 in the Garden of Eden. It's like, it's his again. God's like, I'm going to remove the stench. Verse 20, I'm going to remove the stench and the foul smell. Because I'm going to do great things. <laughs> and then perhaps one of the greatest verses in the whole book is found in verse 25 of chapter 2 one of the great promises of this book where God says I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten what a promise I will restore to you the years that the eating swarming locust has eaten it's going to be on the screen. I want, to, I want you to look at what Charles Spurgeon says about this verse. He says, you cannot have back your time. But there is a strange and wonderful way in which God can give back to you the wasted blessings, the unripened fruits over which you've mourned. It is a pity that they should have been locust eaten by your folly and negligence. But if they have been so, be not hopeless concerning them. There is a strange and wonderful way in which God can give you back your wasted blessings. And you might be sitting here this morning and you say, my sins have taken much of my life. Maybe you say, my sins have taken my teenage years. You say, my sins have taken my college years. Or maybe you say, my sins have taken my parenting, they've taken my marriage, they've taken a season, maybe a financial season, maybe an occupation, maybe there's just a season in life of utter and total regret and shame. And you say, my sin has left me full of shame for the way in which those years, my parenting years, my marriage, my teenage years, my college years were totally wasted. And maybe in here this morning, you've got full regret and full shame. Well, there's something beautiful that happens in Christ. And Joel talks about it. That God is a God who repays, who restores, who brings back, who gives back all those years that the locusts have eaten. When you come to God through Jesus, with your regrets and with your shame... He gives you a promise that in some wonderful and strange way, like Spurgeon put it, he will redeem them. Which brings us to this in more simplified, in Christ, God will not waste your wastefulness. Nor will he shame your shamefulness. Instead, he offers to heal your brokenness. That's the kind of God we serve. That's who God is, a God of judgment, a God who's going going to bring his wrath to this place on individuals because of their sin. But also a God that says, listen, you come to me, return to me. I have a way. Somehow we don't know how. There's some way in which God will take all this and he'll make it right. And in verse 27 of chapter 2, it ends with, with, with this section ends with him saying, You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, and there is no one else. Who else can do that? Tell me what other philosopher, what psychiatrist, what pastor could possibly do what God can do? Who could possibly come to your broken life full of shame and regret because of sin? and brokenness, and say to you, I will redeem it, I can restore it. A God who forgives and delivers. A God who doesn't waste my wastefulness. A God who heals his land. So this is the second fact about God's judgment. First, you look around and you see it's foreshadowed. There's a a great and terrible judgment coming, but then you look in. And you say, I can, be, I can be removed from that judgment." And it's through Jesus Christ who bore the judgment for me on the cross. But there's the third one, and it's the third one we've kind of been talking about all along. The third fact about God's judgment, look ahead. God's ultimate judgment is coming. This is in chapter two, verse 28 through the end of chapter three. So look around. The judgment is foreshadowed, look in, you can be delivered, look ahead, it's coming. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, chapter, our chapter 2, 28 through verse 31 is actually chapter 3 in the Hebrew Bible, and then our chapter 3 is their chapter 4. They actually set aside verses, uh, chapter 2, verse 28 through verse 32 is actually its own chapter in the Hebrew Bible, They set aside this small section because it's so so powerful. It's talking about what God is going to do. And so we're going to read these verses just in light of what we have in the New Testament. It says, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. Now if you remember in Acts chapter 2, Peter quotes this. Part Part of it. Uh, it, And part of it's fulfilled there at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 28. So, what is going on here is Peter is saying the last days have started. Actually, the last days began with the ministry of Jesus Christ. So, we are in the last days right now. Um, Start with Jesus Christ, it's been going on for about 2,000 years. We don't know when the last day will be, but we know we are in the last days. And so, we know that the day of the Lord will come. At the end, the ultimate day of the Lord. So at the end of this, these last days, the last day, at the very end of all this, what happens? At the very end of all this, uh, God pours out his judgment with the day of the Lord. We read about this in Revelation chapter 6 through chapter 19. That's, where, that's what the day of the Lord is. The day of the Lord is not a 24-hour day. The day of the Lord is a time. A time. It's a period of time where God pours out his judgment on the wicked. And this day is still in our future. It's yet to come. It'll happen at the end of days. Now, in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit was poured out. Peter quotes this. But during Pentecost, there, was, there wasn't prophecy and dreams and visions and, and all this stuff going on, at least in, in the scope that this verse is talking about. So we're still waiting full fulfillment of it, but all things are in their place. The fulfillment of Joel's prophecy is not far off. It is coming. The day of the Lord is coming soon. The created order it it talks about. um, He says in verse thirty, "I will show wonders in the heavens and the earth: blood and fire, columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness." Like, even the, 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 the cosmos is going to react to God's presence. Now, I know every time a blood moon comes around, people like to pull up this verse. Just don't fall for it, okay? This I, I don't know if God... If there's like, you know, 24 blood moons before the end of the world, I don't know. Or, you know, if there's like four blood moons within, was it back in 2016? Was it that when everybody was really going crazy because there was a blood moon that was happening within four years or something like that and has had something to do with Israel and, you know, this verse is being plastered all over Facebook and people are sharing it like, oh my goodness, it's here. You know, it's not. It's not. It's not here until God says it's here. So if you see a blood moon or an eclipse, you can relax. Okay, The time to get all excited is when you you see Jesus in the clouds, okay? Not when you see an eclipse in the clouds. When you see Jesus in the clouds, that's the time to get excited because that's when he'll come and take us home. But if you see a blood moon or an eclipse, let's move on. It's coming. It's coming. And we should stop here and just also acknowledge the fact that We talk about the priesthood of all believers. That is, all believers individually have direct access to God. But we need to talk about the prophethood of believers. And I'm not saying all believers, uh, especially today, that they can prophesy what's coming. But the prophethood of believers, what I mean by that is that all of us have the Holy Spirit, which means we have the equipage and the obligation to bear witness to our generation that the day of the Lord is coming. So no, you're not a prophet in that you're going to receive direct revelation from God or visions. That's not going to happen. You're not going to be able to tell the future or anything like that. That's not what's going on. But prophet in the sense is if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have the obligation and the equipage of the Holy Spirit to tell your generation that the day of the Lord is coming and that the only escape will be through Jesus Christ. Notice here, As we begin to wrap this up, chapter 3, verse 14. Multitude, multitudes in the valley of decision. Verse 12 talks about the nations stirring themselves up and coming to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Many link this to the battle of Armageddon. That happens at the end of the age. We won't get too much into that. But just know, there's coming a time where all the nations, still future... This is still future. All the nations are going to gather against God and want to destroy God, Jesus Christ, and Jerusalem. There's going to be a one-world government, and we see things. You know, all the technology going around today. I mean, everything's getting set up for the end times, the end-end times. And so everything's getting set up. It's coming. And so all the nations are going to gather against God, and, 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 they, and they're being called to war. And so it says in verse 9 of chapter 3, Proclaim this among the nations consecrate for war get everybody together verse 10 take all your farming equipment and turn them into weapons whatever you can get whatever weapon you can find get it we're going to a battle and it says this there's this valley of decision now i want you to know this is not a valley and you may have heard it preached this way the valley of decision is not a valley where sinners go to decide whether or not they're going to follow jesus the decision has already been made by that point The valley of decision is the valley in which God fulfills the decision to judge all those who have come against him. To pour out his wrath on all those who reject Christ. Its purpose, the ultimate day of the Lord. Its timing is imminent. Its purpose is judgment. But this all ends at the end of verses 17 through 21. It all ends with blessing for God's people. This all ends with every soul knowing who God is. Every soul, whether heaven or hell, will know who God is. But this ends with those who have trusted in Christ. It ends with eternal blessings. And that's what God offers. He offers life and rescue through His Son, Jesus Christ, so you don't end up on the wrong side of this battle. God is saying, where there was once devastation and destruction and pain and sorrow and death, it's all gone. Verse eighteen says the mountains are going to drip sweet wine, the hills are going to flow with milk, the stream, the stream beds of Judah they're going to overflow with water. God's going to restore all things, and we have to ask. And I think this those causes us. We just can't help but ask, how far away can these things be? The answer is not very far, not very far. William Still was a pastor in Scotland. He was a pastor of the same church for 52 years. Began pastoring there in 1945. And he would regularly write letters to his congregation on a number of different topics. On one topic, uh, uh, writing to his church about revival and things like that, he recounted a story of of a young evangelical Bible student who was on fire for God, all these things, and he got married, and almost immediately the marriage began to crumble and there was dissonance almost immediately in his marriage. And here's, here's what this man, and William's still in, in a letter, there's a collection of his letters, a, a book that I have in my office. But in, in this letter to the church, here's what this young man, whose marriage was falling apart, here's what this, this man would say to Pastor William Still about his marriage. He says, he told him, he says, as we go on in life, the material things... Come to mean more to us. It's a sad story for a marriage. He recognized that as his marriage went on, the only thing to hold that the only thing that was going to hold that thing together were the material things. But it could also be a sad story for the church. That as the church goes on, the material things come to mean more to us than our relationship with God, than our relationship with the world and unbelievers. And so the call for you and for me is to not let that happen. That as we go on in life, the material things do not come to mean more to us. That's the call of the book of Joel. This is a call for you and me to look around Because God's judgment is being foreshadowed. To look in and to know that we too can be saved from the judgment of God. And then to look ahead and know that the ultimate judgment of God is coming. And may we all be found in Christ and ready for his return. And God promises you that he will restore to to you the years the locust has eaten. And that's the theme of the song we're going to close with this morning. Let's pray. Lord, what a gracious and good God you are to us. And of all my mumblings and ramblings and all these things, the most important thing is your word. Lord, I pray that you've been exalted in this message. Lord, I just pray for Calvary Baptist Church, for my own heart, for my own marriage, for my own family, for my own relationships, that as time goes on, material things would not be more and more important. But may the things of this world grow strangely dim in comparison to knowing you, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.